we can actually work toward addressing the global ecological crisis at the same time as improving life for people in cities. Vancouver is a city that's defined by nature. We're surrounded by mountains on one side and ocean on the other. And it's really important to Vancouverites that they have access to nature and that the city feels like it has access to nature, which are two quite different things. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. I'm John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your grateful host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Just a quick note before we dive into this, our third episode of season two. If you are just discovering the Active Towns podcast, we have 52 fascinating conversations about creating a culture of activity from our first season, just waiting for you to explore. Today, I'm incredibly honored to share with you my discussion with Joe Fitzgibbons and Catherine Howard of Vancouver, British Columbia, about the development of the Restorative Natural Area RNA Index and how it is aiding the city in ensuring a more equitable approach when it comes to access to nature. Joe is a PhD doctoral candidate at the University of British Columbia and a sustainability scholar with the Urban Biodiversity Hub. Wow, Catherine is a project manager for the city of Vancouver, currently working on their comprehensive master plan, and she was instrumental in developing VanPlay, the city's parks and recreation services master plan. But before we dive into that discussion, please allow me a moment to once again mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you all so very much for your amazing support. And if you too would be willing to help me produce this content, please head over to my website at activetowns, that's plural, .org, and simply click on that blue donate link in the top right corner of the page. As always, I've included the link in the show notes. One last thing before we get started. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on your preferred podcast listening platform. This really does help out a lot. Thanks. Okay, let's get this intriguing conversation with Joe and Catherine Rowling. I am absolutely delighted to have with me uh, two guests from the the Great White North, at least uh, from the Austin perspective, uh, Joe and Catherine. Uh, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, first off, why don't we do this? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got engaged with and, and excited about the work that you're doing. Uh, Catherine, let's start with you. Sure. Uh, so my name is Catherine Howard. I'm a parks, recreation, environmental planner and strategist. I'm a project manager for the city of Vancouver's VanPlay, which is our parks and recreation services master plan. My background is, um, well, I'm from Australia. <laughs> I'm Australian and I've worked on parks and recreation strategic planning for more than a decade. I have a big focus on access to nature, especially coastal ecosystems and having how the how humans play in nature is really important to me. And so my role in developing the new vision for what the city of Vancouver's parks network was going to look like in 50 or 100 years from now was an absolute dream come true. And I've been able to work on some 
really interesting trains of thought and uh, investigative experiences to try and really deeply understand the system and what we could do to transform what we, you know, or the challenges that we're dealing with, but also thrive in, in, in the environment we have. So I'm just thrilled to be uh, able to work on this sort of thing every day and to work with beautiful people like Joe. Fantastic. So what inspired you to get into this particular line of work? What was sort of the, the origin story for, for you on that? Um, lots of things. I mean, I grew up on the coast of Western Australia playing in the Indian Ocean. And for me, the way that I restore and, and revive myself when I'm anxious or I'm tired or there's a lot going on in the world is, is to retreat to nature. Uh, and it was incredibly important to me to, to have that experience available for people forever. And so when I was studying, I actually started my uh, university career in winemaking and was learning winemaking and thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to make these beautiful wines and contribute to this beautiful experience. And then had this huge crisis in my third year of university and went, there's not going to be any water and sea level rise and everything's going horribly and, and we need access to nature and we need to look at ecosystems and we need water management that works and we need policies that secure places like the ocean and the beachfront for people forever. Uh, and so I gave up my dream of creating nice wine in a beautiful location and focused on first actually working on coastal planning policy. And really it was uh, to set strong policy that enabled us to make really good decisions about how we manage coastal landscapes so that in 100 years time, when we do see the effects of sea level rise and storm surge patterns changing and all of these things happening that we've still got public access to the beach. That was what 100% inspired me to take on environmental planning as a career and, and the focus on the human aspects of, of environmental planning. Wow, there you go. Cool. Excellent. Uh, Joe, let's uh, have you uh, give a little bit about uh, about yourself. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I relate to a lot of what Catherine is saying. I uh, have a similar kind of story about accessing nature. I grew up in Nova Scotia in a fairly rural community and I was, you know, spent most of my my time as a kid like catching frogs and bugs and and spending time outdoors and then became interested in social and environmental issues as I kind of got into university and it was actually through my uh, my master's program at the University of Waterloo. I was studying uh, the process and politics of planning for urban resilience. So I'm a social scientist and I'm kind of interested in and how we collaborate around these kind of social and environmental issues. But I was studying resilience issues when I, the social side of resilience, I suppose, when I, I started to become more interested in the, the ecological dimensions of resilience as well. And I can remember having um, this moment during my master's where I was, you know, it's grad school, really stressed out. I was really needing to decompress. And I was living in the city of Toronto at the time, which is kind of a concrete jungle. It's like a classic example. And I had this moment where I, I kind of went for a walk in one of the ravines, which is this really great network of wild-ish, I should say, parks in, uh, in the city of Toronto. And they're kind of like the underdog of parks in the city. Like they're not very well known, but they're these really great, really natural feeling spaces. And it was just so rejuvenating. And I kind of decided in that moment that I wanted to really focus on ecological resilience and those same kind of questions of access to nature, because um, it felt very, very kind of close to home and very um, 
you know, like a place that, that I could really, you know, contribute in a way that, that felt meaningful for me. So that's what I'm doing now is I'm working on my, my PhD at the University of British Columbia, working with Dr. Kai Chan as my supervisor. And uh, my research now is kind of exploring the governance and ethics that surround biodiversity planning and rewilding efforts in cities. And that was how I, I got connected with uh, Catherine as well as through UBC, through a sustainability scholars position, had the opportunity to start working with the park board this summer with this access to nature project. Yeah. And it's that access to nature project that caught my eye and my attention. And in fact, I think it was the the actual report that uh, was out there. So the access to nature in Vancouver, what does it mean and can we map it? And and part of that also was the the RNA index, the restorative uh, natural area index. Who wants to to kick that off and 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 sort of introduce that topic? Sure, I can uh, I can say a few words about it. Catherine and a few other folks at the at the park board um, came up with this idea through trying to implement the greenest city action plan, which is the city of Vancouver's kind of broad umbrella sustainability plan to 2020. And in the Greenest City Action Plan, there's this target of having every resident having access to nature and living within kind of a five minute walk from a park. And I asked about that during my interview uh, with Catherine at the park board. And she said, that was a great start. But in planning to try to meet that target over the years, they've realized that there's so much nuance to this question of access to nature, both in terms of access and nature. Those are things that people experience really differently. And they're really, you know, shaped by our identity and our experience. And folks at the city of Vancouver at the park board were interested in knowing if there was some way that we could capture some of those more kind of qualitative considerations and add a little bit of nuance to the way that we were planning for access to nature. So that was where that was where I came in. I don't know if Catherine had anything you wanted to add for context around that or yeah, and before maybe you describe what the index actually entails, it's probably a, a good point to sort of talk about why you would want to map something like this. Um, it kind of feels a little bit strange to feel like you should map something that's so nuanced and personal and like why would you bother mapping something like that? Like why not just build more parks or plant more trees? And And really the answer to that comes down to really understanding how decisions are made in government. Um, and how to affect change. So part of the work we did with Vanplay was really deeply understanding what was going on to cause certain impacts on the ground. Uh, and a great way to show impact on the ground is through mapping, both historical and future. Like if you can map something continuously over time, then you can show change. Um, but also you can demonstrate patterns that are already happening in the city and you can say, okay, well, what's going on with that? Why is that the way it is? And does it always have to be that way? And we really wanted to have a very strong equity focus in the master plan. Uh, and now equity is a really deep topic uh, and a citywide master plan with a 25 year vision to hundred year vision is a really blunt instrument to affect something as complex as equity. So when we were looking at that and trying to work out a tool that we could use at a master plan scale to impact equity, mapping was the obvious choice. Um, and in particular, creating priority setting tools using mapping. They're fantastic for decision makers to use as a resource. They're politically fantastic. People love looking at maps. I am certainly not alone in being a map lover. As soon as you put a map out on, on a table, people gravitate towards them. And you can tell some really powerful stories with maps. Uh, and so the mapping tool that's included in Vanplay, which we're calling the Equity Initiative Zones, 
help us to prioritize effort. And that can mean capital funding, for example, or where projects are delivered. Uh, and what's really important about that to know from an equity perspective is that cities as they develop, and this is not unusual to Vancouver, almost every colonial-ish city in the world is like this, that patterns of investment in infrastructure, everything from lot sizes to where like ports are, where schools are, and everything like that is tied to systems of power. And always has been. Like the rich folks get the nice leafy green suburbs on top of the hill and everyone else gets whatever's left. And because decisions made without strong, transparent priority setting tools uh, happen when you don't have them, uh, you end up supporting the loud, politically engaged voices. You oil the squeaky wheels and that's the status quo. And so this mapping really upsets that pattern and tries to show what's going on in the city and enable decision makers to put effort into areas that we may not be hearing from people. Uh, and that's really interesting. So Joe's index is one contributor to a set of maps uh, in the initiative zones and really helps us ask better questions and prioritize where to put those trees when we have them to plant. So uh, then Joe can tell you about how she created the map, but that's uh, kind of the reason why we went down that path. Well, and before we do that, let's let's address uh, one thing that you, you sort of alluded to, which is that uh, both access and nature is both nuanced and somewhat subjective. So how did you deal with that? Joey, that one's yours. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a messy beast for sure. I, I think my approach as a, a social scientist and a qualitative researcher, my instinct is always to start with the data. So I wanted to talk to people first and kind of draw my conclusions based on on what people felt and what people thought about natural spaces in Vancouver. So we launched a public engagement survey and it was kind of a fun exercise. Like it was basically a, you know, a series of photos and different descriptions and stuff like that. And people could drag and drop the photos according to different scenes that made them feel more or less connected with nature and then kind of expand on that. And so what we were trying to do there is really get a sense of the qualities about a space that that cause that restorative feeling that we all kind of innately know and understand and relate with about spending time in nature, but that's really hard to articulate. And, and, and we do kind of in other ways experience differently still. And this, this is sort of coming in part from a, an interesting conversation that I had with someone at the park board, a Haida woman named Rina Sutar. And she's the reconciliation planner uh, for the park board. And so provides really great uh, indigenous knowledge and perspective to the work that they're doing. And I asked her what she thought about, about how to plan for access to nature. And she basically said, it's bogus. It doesn't make any sense from an indigenous perspective because we don't see nature and humans as being separate. We don't think of it as you go out the door and then go to nature. It's it's actually more of an issue that our relationship with nature is broken. And that's what the problem was from her perspective. And so I tried to kind of take that spirit with me as I, as I explored um, those, those meanings, like the more kind of what does it mean to have a good relationship with nature and, and what are the kind of like qualities that help people, you know, really feel connected and, and have a meaningful relationship with nature. And yeah, the, the main instrument that we used to get there was the public engagement survey, but I also did some literature review focused on kind of uh, well-being studies around um, accessing nature uh, and a jurisdictional policy scan to explore how some other cities around the world were kind of grappling with this complicated issue as well. 
And the inter- interaction between access and nature is interesting as well because, and something that Joe found with her, the indicators she ended up choosing was that a lot of the things that increase feelings of access reduce your feeling of nature because the more you put in the infrastructure to make it easy to walk through, the less naturey it feels. So that was one part of it. And the other piece was that people's experience of um, being able to enter a place and to be in that space varied very culturally as well. And there was a lot of research that doted around cultural feelings of feeling comfortable in certain spaces. Um, and whether you'd actually seek out something wild and <laughs> wild and naturey from a European perspective, if that's not what you're really into. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you'd sort of alluded to it earlier, uh, Catherine, um, uh, the about the equity side of things, because uh, even that has a play in terms of how comfortable uh, you know somebody feels within an environment, and so that influences and in, in, in impacts that that concept of accessibility. Is it accessible to everyone, regardless of of you know who they are? Now, one of the things that did come out uh, was a term, uh, the reconciliation process. I know what you mean, and I'm sure most of the folks know what you mean up in the Vancouver area, but I guarantee you with our audience, which is a worldwide audience, they may not know what the reconciliation process is. Catherine, can you bring us up to speed with what's going on there? That's quite the question. (laughs) I wouldn't say that any of us really know. To be honest, like it's not, it's a developing story and it's something that we're really committed to from the, so we as the Vancouver Board of Parks and Recreation are really interested in exploring. And at the moment, uh, that process looks sort of like a review of what's going on, getting our house in order itself, uncovering and telling the truth about the decisions that were made in the past that were detrimental and harmful and having that kind of truth telling phase, get all of it out, get all of this all of the information out there and so Rena is actually doing what she's calling a um, colonial audit (laughs) which is just fantastic like it's definitely just the name of that is a joke in itself you know it's quite funny an audit is the most colonial thing ever so uh, it's an interesting thing for a, a government to do let alone a parks and recreation system to do because parks again the fact that they exist as parks is a colonial construct um, and we've been stewards and land managers of of land that traditionally would not have been managed that way. So she's unpacking a heap of stuff, uh, which is the first step. The second step in what we would call perhaps a process that we're working with at the moment is the relationship building piece, um, making stronger relationships built on trust and reciprocity with our Indigenous uh, rights holders. So we're on the lands of the Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam and Squamish people in Vancouver, and we're working on lots of fantastic projects uh, that have a collaborative feel, especially around our beautiful Stanley Park, which is our main forest. Uh, so that would be perhaps step two uh, and then step three and four and five and six and seven forever. We're not sure of yet, um, but really it's at the moment just uncovering what's what's happened before and trying to make a new way of working together in the future. Yeah. And, and, you know, from, from my quick little review of the documents that, that, uh, and the report that was out there, uh, and, and Joe, you even mentioned this is that it's significant because there is a different relationship to the wilderness, to nature. And so it, having that context and taking a step back and, and appreciating that is, I think, very, very important. 
For sure. Yeah. And maybe like also just to provide a little bit more context on on what some of that truth is, I guess, in, in like a Vancouver context. And, and I think in North America, this is kind of the story, like we think of national parks or any kind of park system, like they're impl- implemented in the first place, mostly for conservation goals. And it's a very, you know, in the first place, they were um, implemented with a very kind of like white Western perspective of what conservation means. And in many cases, when protected areas were implemented, there were people that were already living on that land that were forced to leave. And so that's the story in Vancouver, uh, where the park board office is here in Vancouver, actually, is in Stanley Park, which was um, traditionally, um, I believe, a Squamish settlement. So that's kind of uh, a part of the process as well as kind of like unearthing the ways that the park board and park agencies all around um, the world, but certainly in North America, have been actually drivers of that expulsion of indigenous people from land. And so exploring what it means to decolonize in a very tangible, um, you know, not as a metaphor, but in an actual, you know, kind of returning land and stewardship, you know, what does that mean? That's been something I've been really interested in seeing how the park board is, is exploring that. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, like when you think about tangible things, like Vancouver was built, um, predominantly built and built out before really had much environmental conscience, <laughs> conscience at all. And it was cleared of a lot of its environment. All the streams were buried and everything was kind of cut down and cleared. Uh, it was a port city, so they needed lots of land and clear it all out. <laughs> and uh, so we're lucky that some great decisions were made. And I think this is a Another example of the power of long-range strategic planning. <laughs> that sounds like the most colonial thing ever, but like we made decisions about the use of land, and in particular, the, when the park board was first established, they uh, decided that they wanted to acquire all the land along the beachfront in English Bay and in False Creek. And so now we have this incredible connected waterfront experience that runs around Stanley Park. And it's twenty-two kilometers of, of trails and without the forethought to do something like that and um, buy land as it came up and, you know, um, change the way that decisions were made, we wouldn't have, wouldn't have got this incredible thing. So uh, I think making big, uh, big targets and goals is the way that we can start undoing some of this as well and just slowly chip away at it. Every stream that we unearth gets us closer. Yeah. It's almost as if we are, sort of relearning what uh, previous generations knew through uh, through experience and generations after generations after generations of experience. And they had that intellectual knowledge that got passed along. Whereas we, we make, we have to come up with our master plans to try to rectify a lot of the uh, <clears throat> problems that we have created. So one of the things that that I wanted to touch upon related to sort of the mapping context of this is that uh, one of the things that I've been talking about over the past eight years with the Active Towns Initiative is that concept of doing just this. We, we call it uh, activity asset mapping and really taking a step back and looking at a community and seeing where there are opportunities for people to live a healthy, active lifestyle 
And it's, you know, we talk about things in, in the hardware context of, you know, hey, we can we can take a map, we can put a pin in it and say, hey, we've got a park over here. We've got a pool over there. We've got a pathway over here. You know, these are very tangible to use that word and, and you know, the physical uh, things that are there. But then we also talk a lot about the accessibility of somebody being able to get from their home where they are, their, their, their or origin, you know, location and, you know, and trying to get to that destination and the accessibility to get there. And one of the, the constant challenges that we have in North America of getting to the loved activity assets is you can't get there from here <laughs> unless you get into an automobile and maybe it's a long circuitous route. You, you know, by the, the, the way of the crow might fly, you could, you know, easily just walk there or bike there, but you have to take an SUV to get there and load your, your, your family in and maybe even load your bike, the, the irony of ironies to be able to then enjoy that part. And so I know that it's part of the report. And part of that is like how accessible are these natural areas? And so that's one of the things that, that I always think about is, you know, the, that qualitative analysis of how truly accessible is it for uh, all ages and abilities, whether it's an eight-year-old or an 80-year-old to be able to make it there and how comfortable and pleasant is that journey. Talk a little bit about that in terms of, of the analysis and whether that was also considered. Yeah, part of the reason we wanted Joe to do this work was so that we could show where the gaps were. To, um, Got it. To, add, to fill those gaps. Um, and additionally, and some of the indicator kind of work that she did was trying to also get at like, what does it, what does it take to be considered a restorative natural area? Like, and can we just include restorative natural areas as a list of other things that parks does? Like how, how's your access to sports fields? You know, can you get there on your bike? Um, so can you go to rugby practice on your bike? That's ideal. Um, can you get to your school? Can you get to a grocery store? Uh, all of these things are part of what makes whole, complete, active communities thrive is to have a really good understanding of the functions and services and levels of service we need to provide throughout the city so that we can build the infrastructure or get out of the way, <laughs> which is often the case as well. Uh, so Joe spent a lot of time thinking about what would, what does it take to become a restorative natural area? Can we squeeze some little bits of nature into otherwise more active park spaces or even non-park spaces? And is a tree-lined street a restorative natural area or is that something completely different? Right, man. And that makes that makes perfect sense. Joe, I see you're ready to jump in there on something. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to add thinking about connectivity. I mean, that's something that I think the park board is, has really tried to embed in a lot of like in van play. It's kind of one of the, the guiding principles of van play is connectivity. And it's something that definitely came out in trying to build the restorative natural area index as well. One thing that I remember, I did some interviews with folks from from the other cities for my case studies to kind of get a sense of, of, of what other cities were doing. And, and one person that I spoke with from Fort Collins, Colorado, who worked on their Nature in the City program, mentioned that the foraging range for native bees is about the same as you know, the, the distance that an average person is willing to walk to get to 
you know, a park or a bus stop or something like that. And I thought that that was a really cool example. Like the, the social ecological thinker in me is really excited by that example because it shows the importance of like green corridors can contribute to so many different outputs and, and even, you know, a restorative natural area, like you might get one thing out of that sort of a space, like a big um, Stanley Park type space with a shoreline and towering cedars. But that's not to say that those smaller, you know, greenways and, and connecting spaces are not still super important for making those bigger spaces what they are. And so, yeah, thinking about that in terms of the diversity of spaces that we need to have in a city is is really, I think, a huge part of planning for access to nature as well. Do you remember what that distance was? I, th- I, I'm not sure. I know it overlapped a little bit with the five minute walk metric, uh, which is basically also the same as the, the World Health Organization has this as the crow flies 300 meter distance. So it would be, it would be about that, I suppose. But yeah, I'd have to have to double check with her about that. Yeah. And what's interesting about that too, because when you look at human behavior, it, if that journey is stimulating, stimulating, interesting, comfortable, beautiful, it's going to blow, it's going to go, you, you know, next thing you're, you're going to do, you're going to look down and say, wow, I've been going for 15 minutes and it doesn't feel like that. You know, it's like time just, you know, slips by. Go ahead, Catherine. I was just going to jump on the uh, thought about the ecosystem part of this as well, inspired by the bees is that like what urban ecosystems, if you think about it as a functioning ecosystem, semi-functioning, <laughs> functioning in its own way, a lot of what holds back urban ecosystem development and, and biodiversity measures is the connectivity of them. You can't, you can have a beautifully robust one space lot of forest land but if it's not connected to a wider ecosystem in the landscape and you don't consider it in the in the landscape scale it's not going to be sustainable and we'll have to keep adding and and managing it uh, because it's more of a human landscape than it is an ecosystem so uh, a lot of what we know about urban ecosystems is based on this connectivity measure as well which is interesting yeah, and and thinking about like I chose the word restorative in the index for a reason too, to because it, it's kind of touching on both of those, the ecological dimensions of what is restorative, and then also the social dimensions. So you can think about kind of landscape restoration as being really in a lot of in a lot of cases, you know, those goals that we have for ecological restoration are actually pretty well aligned with the things that we know bring well being to people when particularly, you know, during times of crisis. And there's an interesting body of research on something called supportive environment theory, which is something I'll probably chat with Catherine about <laughs> again at some point, because I think it it provides a lot of support for this idea of the restorative natural area index. But it kind of adds adds another layer in that, you know, people who are dealing with particular, you know, stresses or trauma or that kind of that kind of thing in their life, at different times in life, we have different needs for what we want out of a space. And so you know, people who are struggling and who who are experiencing, you know, a crisis, COVID-19, for example, uh, we, we've seen obviously that those really natural spaces and the restorative natural areas are especially important. And whereas at other times, maybe when we're, you know, have more energy and our well-being is higher, we have more of an inclination to lean towards those social places, the more accessible places where we can connect with others and be loud and have fun and play volleyball on the beach and that kind of thing. So I think that's another interesting layer to the kind of accessibility question as well. When we return after this very brief break, Joe dives into the details of the Restorative Natural Area Index. Catherine discusses the connection of the RNA Index tool to the mapping work the city has been engaged with 
and how the city and community members have responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. But before we get into those discussions, allow me a moment for a quick request. If you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague so we can continue to grow the audience and this movement to create safer, more inviting places that promote a healthy culture of activity. Okay, that's it for this short intermission. Let's bring this conversation with Joe and Catherine back up to speed. So let's dive into the RNA index at this point. Yeah. So the Restorative Natural Area Index, basically the, the concept um, is to, so it's, it's based mostly in heat vulnerability mapping actually was the kind of inspiration. And so when you look at a heat vulnerability map um, from Toronto was the one that I was most familiar with. Um, they basically develop a you know ranking system for particular spaces around the city based on multiple variables that we know contribute to or take away from heat vulnerabilities. So it'll be things like how many elderly people are living in the area? Is there a lot of green space, which we know, you know, provides that cooling effect? Is there a swimming pool or the places to cool off, that kind of thing. And so the the thinking for the restorative natural area index was kind of, you know, can we replicate that kind of a logic to the ways that people can access these restorative natural areas and restorative spaces. So what it basically looks like is um, two sets of you know data or indicators based mostly in the findings from the public engagement survey so things that people said made them feel more connected with nature and gave them that restorative feeling those would get like a plus one and then the things that are more more accessible that took away a little bit from that uh, feeling of being connected with nature those would get a minus one and so the score that you get at the end the idea is that you'd be able to make what's called a bivariate corpleth map, which is like a two-colored heat map that'll show you areas of the city that have a lot of restorative natural area versus areas that have more of accessible kind of built-up park space. That's the kind of SparkNotes version of, of what the idea was. And Catherine can say a little bit more, but, but the idea also is that this is going to work as a layer of the equity initiative mapping that Catherine was mentioning earlier. So I think that's kind of really an essential piece from my perspective is that something like this is really meant to be understood within the context of the city and the neighborhoods in the city. And so, you know, looking at, for example, an an area in Vancouver that experiences a a lot of challenges is the downtown east side. It's got a lot of poverty, a lot of drug use issues, a lot of homelessness. And so looking at the kinds of green spaces that we have in that part of the city and then comparing that to a more affluent part of the city, something like the Restorative Natural Area Index can show us how the quality of those spaces and the quality of experience is really different in a way that most of the other metrics that cities are using to measure access to nature, like a five-minute walk from a park, those tools don't really differentiate in the in the same kind of way as the restorative natural area index is meant to. So, yeah, is that a good spot to to pivot towards you, Catherine? I love the restorative natural areas index as it's because it's such a. It was all the things I was hoping for in terms of sparking interesting conversations out of the mapping work that we did. Uh, within Vanplay itself, like sometimes when you work on big projects like this, you're trying to gather as much information into one document as you possibly can, and you you're never going to cover everything. And so, uh, part of the more strategist in me uh, likes to throw some big juicy ideas out to the world and hope that they get taken up and that they inspire some of this really deep thinking that can contribute and grow the conversation. And 
really the, uh, the both the equity work and the um, connectivity vision sort of work that we did in VanPlay was totally meant to do that. Like it only answers like 10% of the conversation. <laughs> it's like, here it is, get the ball rolling, start some momentum around this and let's explore it further over the next you know, 20 years, we don't have to give all of the answers all at once. So I, I just think it's such a thoughtful way of taking the idea of the heat mapping and helping us really understand, understand the city better so we can make better decisions. So I think it was just it was exactly what I wanted to see. <laughs> I was very excited. And then along comes a pandemic. In, uh, in June, uh, Catherine, you wrote an article in, in the City Fix uh, about the lockdowns and the stay-at-home orders. And, and it just really brought to the forefront the value of green open spaces in crowded cities. And, but it also brought to the forefront those inequities in, in addressing those gaps that you had just mentioned earlier. So uh, why don't you talk a little bit about how this equity map mapping is going to help the city sort of address these challenges? Yeah, and I actually think, and this is actually a terrible thing to say, but the, <laughs> the pandemic has provided Parks and Recreation people the best PR campaign that we could ever have. Uh, it is on in the spotlight now more than it ever has been. And I've been working as a park strategy advocate for a long time and and trying to get at the table to talk about uh, investing in green space and sustainably financing green space so that we don't just deliver these beautiful things and then just walk away from them and let them rot like that we actually have systems that are well funded and well executed as part of what government does has been a challenge for a really long time. So now we're in this moment that everyone's looking at parks and valuing how incredibly important they are to cities in particular, especially as density and inequities and stresses are happening in cities. So uh, I'm kind of excited about the possibilities of what we can do with the energy and momentum that we have right now. And I hope we don't waste it. <laughs> but actually, it's interesting to see how the equity mapping work thrived in our pandemic response. And we were in a situation that we had a lot of information already to, ready to hand because we had just finished van play and we were able to act really rapidly when, when COVID hit. And having a prioritization tool that's a map, again, is such a valuable thing because it's so easy to grab. It, it's colorful, looks great. It's a logical thing to put on a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> it's really easy. So we were able to prioritize efforts to have um, people out in parks to, to help with the education campaigns, for example. We were out in parks that were in these initiative zone areas, making sure they were functioning right, pulling out things that were getting in the way to bring people close together when we were hoping that people could stay apart. And because we were able to do this and activate so rapidly using a well-defined prioritization tool uh, allowed us to keep the parks 100% open throughout the whole pandemic when many other cities in the world, especially cities as dense as Vancouver, ended up closing parks. Like we did close a lot of our amenities, outdoor amenities that had touch points, but everything that we could keep open, we did because we were able to prioritize effort really quickly. We knew exactly the hotspots straight away. We didn't have to think about it. And who knew that was such a such a strength of, of the project. And I kind of uh, joke that Vancouver's park master plan is a little bit different to everyone else's because the park board is a little bit different everywhere else in the world and that it, uh, 
it's it rapidly changes. We're subject to a lot of competing forces all the time. A lot of the funding mechanisms and political systems are reactionary uh, and opportunistic. So the plan itself couldn't be as structured as, as other park master plans are. And that if we just created a list of things to do, it probably wouldn't work. It just, the organization is just not really structured that way, uh, which ended up playing to our favor this year in that we were able to um, take advantage of opportunities uh, and react in the way that we know how. So it actually worked surprisingly well. It was more future-proof than we thought. <laughs> yeah, and, and I will verify with you that uh, in doing interviews over the last nine months uh, worldwide, I, I'm hearing back from people, uh, you know, whether they're in Europe or or anywhere across North America that in the midst of a truly devastating pandemic, I think that we are realizing that, or, or, or shall I say that it really pushed us to see where a lot of our weaknesses were. And so, you know, when I was, when I would be talking with somebody who is, you know, in the active mobility area or in the transportation sector, and they're, they're just like, yeah, we have pressure now on trying to make streets for people. The car traffic has gone down and the sidewalks are too crowded and the limited park space and the limited pathways that they have needing to make more, more, you know, uh, space available. So. And permission to try new things. You know, there was this permission to say, well, it's an emergency. We can try this new thing. We can close this road and we can like just throw all these new experiments out there because we had this sort of ability to just set free from some of the bureaucratic uh, stuff that sort of held us back before. And retaining that freedom is, is going to be the next challenge. But, <laughs> but at least it'll let us try some fun things. Gosh, I, I just did an interview uh, and posted a, a podcast episode with uh, Jonathan Fertig in Denver, Colorado. And one of the things that came up was the fact that, you know, because of the pandemic, uh, it put pressure on the city to close down motor vehicle traffic through the middle of some of their preeminent parks uh, because they, they, you know, just like our, our main park here, Zilker Park, in the city of Austin, uh, we've got a four lane road, high speed road going right through the middle of it. And, and uh, unfortunately ours is not closed, but uh, the city of Denver was able to make that, uh, New York was able to um, uh, end that cut traffic, that cut through traffic of motor vehicles, high speed motor vehicles through the middle of some of their uh, cherished parks as well. So, yeah. And in that, like, it's interesting to see uh, this opportunity to show what the impact of that is on the feeling of in those places. Like, you can go into those parks when the road is closed and go, oh, my gosh, like, I can hear birds now or, like, I feel so much more comfortable here now or I feel safer on my bike here now. And and it's a demonstration project as well as, um, and, and you know, collecting data around this is the next thing is if we can show, like, the biodiversity or like how often people were seeing birds in different places in the city as we tried these different ideas, uh, then we can cement them and have this evidence base to support some of the work we do, especially around creating na nature in the city. People don't really realize the impact uh, until yeah. they see it. 
And speaking of creating nature in the city, uh, Joe, from your perspective, uh, what about that? You know, do we have an opportunity to take, you know, some of our built environment that may be overbuilt and uh, strategically create some opportunity to bring some wilding back into it? Maybe it's maybe it's actually bringing to light some of the hidden gems like what you had just mentioned earlier or 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 maybe it's it's new plantings or new strategies of uh being able to bring that to life yeah it's um it's definitely an interesting thing that's been top of mind for me and a lot of other researchers working in this space right now i'm doing a research project with a couple of my colleagues on how people's relationship with nature has changed, with urban nature specifically has changed as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, for example, one one of the things that we're finding is that people are on average, like spending more time looking out their window, doing bird watching from their balcony and like taking on these different activities to notice the nature that's around us all the time that we don't really like stop to look at the rest of the time. And so I'm not going to lie that there's definitely like uh, a hope in my heart that people will keep noticing those things after the pandemic is over and we kind of go back to the the hustle and bustle. But something to think about for sure, like how these crises can bring about windows of opportunity to create change. Like a crisis, a crisis is never never a good thing, but but sometimes it's kind of the trigger that we need to be able to make a lot of the changes that we've been wanting to make for a long time, and that we've just not really had the the political kind of opportunity to do so. And I see, I, th- I think that that's what's going on with um, a lot of the the parks and and different actions around North America, where we're seeing you know reduced traffic and uh, and that sort of thing. And of course, all of that is good for wildlife as well, like the the things that that benefit people in a city tend to be the same things that benefit all, you know, life in a city with with some exceptions, of course, but rewilding, I think is something that is, you know, there's, there's a lot of nuance, I guess, and it's not something that is to be taken lightly at the same time, like there's a lot that we don't know about how ecosystems will respond with certain interventions and that kind of thing. So I mean, it's something that I'm really interested in. I don't know if it's necessarily something that the Restorative Natural Area Index can totally unpack, but I think one thing that it does do well is that it it shows us that these sorts of spaces can be important for multiple different reasons and that we, we can actually work toward addressing the global ecological crisis at the same time as improving life for people in cities. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really about setting priorities. And now, because our priorities shifted, people have perhaps have new priorities that they may have not fully explored yet. But cities have new priorities. And again, the value of having mapping exercises like the restorative natural areas or, you know, any strong target is that you can show like what would it take. So often cities set goals, like really lofty goals, like, you know, everyone was within a five minute walk of a park or we're going to increase the tree canopy cover to 30% or, and it's really hard for people to really understand what that means, what it actually looks like. And so we set these goals and we're like, okay, we're going to start working towards these. And when we start actually implementing it, that's when we have to do the more engagement and, and more storytelling to say, okay, this is the benefit it's going to have. But if you use kind of the momentum that we already have and the understanding of the city that we have thanks to Joe's work, we could show, well, you know, this is actually what it could possibly look like. 
using interesting technology to, to show, well, this is the experience that we've shown really hot red in, in restorative natural area value. What if we put that over in this area of the city that has left, that's what it could possibly look like? What do you think? Is that something you can get behind? And, and then we can all get excited. And when it happens, you can just flow through, like you're getting all of the bureaucratic barriers out of the way when you're setting priorities rather than when you're implementing it, which is so much slower. So there's like some value in that big setting of goals as well, taking advantage of the new the new view of the world. <laughs> yeah, I think those are great points too around like communicating the value of these spaces to people that there were sort of, and, and that was something that I had in mind when I was trying to come up, you know, at first I was thinking like maybe we could come up with some kind of interactive tool so that people could, you know, find, there, there's this tool in Wellington, New Zealand, one of the case studies that I looked at where they actually map things like people's, you know, whether you can hear the sound of crashing waves or bird song in a space. And I thought that was such a, a nice idea for kind of underscoring like the value that these spaces can have for people. But, but also like when we think about rewilding, like there's a lot of confusion around that term and what exactly it means, because it means a lot of different things in different contexts. And so I think there can be like fear and confusion and misunderstanding when it comes to efforts to improve biodiversity in the city. Like one thing that I know the Vancouver Park Board kind of classically struggles with is trying to put in like wildflower meadows, for example, and people just think it's weedy and kind of unkempt and don't really understand what they're looking at. And so thinking about the restorative natural area index and other tools like it as like a communication tool as well to to help people make sense of what these spaces can do for them and that it, it's not really, it's not a trade-off necessarily between, you know, biodiversity and human uses of the space. It, it's yeah, that these spaces can provide for, for all of us. Yeah. Great point. And I'm really glad uh, that uh, you, you were able to, you know, really sort of blend in the communication and the community engagement aspect of it, because Ultimately, that's one of the things, recurring themes that we we hear about over and over and over again. Doesn't matter what city around the world, uh, change if we're <laughs> if we're if we're proposing change suddenly becomes very fear-inducing, and so uh, it's it's wonderful to be able to have that ability to uh, touch it, feel it, see it, maybe see it in a context that makes more sense and. And that's one of the things that or one of the areas that we love is this concept of tactical urbanism, giving people the opportunity to, to see it and feel it and go, oh, that, this is what a protected bike lane would look like and feel like with planters. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, we're going to soften up this this landscape versus it just being all hard, you know, metal and steel and plastic and things of that nature. Any final thoughts that uh, you really think that we uh, we should talk about? Joe, we'll start with you. I'm really happy to see that the Restorative Natural Area Index has generated a lot of interest. I think like the op-ed with the City Fix and, you know, chatting with you, I, I've had a lot of emails from people that are just showing me, I guess, that there's a real appetite for a tool like this. And, you know, it articulates a need that I think a lot of cities are facing. So, I'm excited to have been able to contribute and I'm especially excited to see, you know, as people take it and run with it, what other improvements can be made and how we can continue to kind of work a more a more qualitative and experiential lens into the way that we understand how to plan cities for people. 
Fantastic. And Catherine, your, your question is going to be just slightly different unless you had something you were just dying to say. You can blend it into this. I know that you're working on the uh, comprehensive plan, right, for, for the city at this point? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. This, this yeah. So, plan. okay. Mm-hmm. So the master plan or the, yeah, it's the master plan. So the, uh, or the comprehensive plan, the, uh, the park plan has been completed. Did I understand that correctly? That's right. Okay. Very, very good. So you're going to be doing that. So in the context of what we've been talking about, uh, for your final point, you know, sort of tie that into the, you know, this, this comprehensive plan that y'all are, are working on right now. Yeah, I mean, the uh, the opportunity to take a, a good hard look at what's going on in the city and what the city wants to be in the future is just an incredible opportunity. And Vancouver is a city that's defined by nature. We're surrounded by mountains on one side and ocean on the other. And it's really important to Vancouverites that they have access to nature and that the city feels like it has access to nature, which are two quite different things. And so my, you know, ambition towards the Vancouver plan is to fully implement my work in Vanplay. And what that actually looks like for me is showing how we can incorporate access to nature and green, urban greenery into everything the city does. You want to build a new bike lane? Great. Where can we put the trees alongside it? You're, we need less, less uh, of this street. Can we make it into a park or a forest? We need to manage our urban water better because the pipes are overflowing. Let's implement green infrastructure for water management that creates ecosystem services, that provides a place for Joe's kids to go and play with the frogs. Let's make every municipal decision guided by providing more access to nature and have that shape the way that the city operates and delivers on all of the other things that are important to the city. And obviously access to nature is just one challenge that we can include, but like housing is important and affordability is important and access to services is important. And we can achieve all of those things with a lens of providing better access to nature through these win-win sort of scenarios, which don't have a huge impact from the get-go and actually have much better um, value propositions in the long term for every aspect of municipal functioning. So that's my ambition for the Vancouver plan uh, and putting it out to the universe and hoping for the best at this point. But like, that's, I think, something that all cities can can have as their heart and soul if we do it properly. Yeah, I think, Catherine, I'm so happy that folks like you are working on the Vancouver plan and those kind of more comprehensive visions as well, because, you know, I always kind of reflect back on access to nature is kind of only one part of the picture as well. I, I think a lot of the the critical scholarship on this kind of topic has shed light on risks like green gentrification, for example, where, you know, adding green space to um, less affluent areas can can actually push people out. And so things like the Vancouver plan, like thinking about these things in a really holistic way and making sure that we have housing policies to keep people in place at the same time as we're improving access to nature. Um, I guess that would be my, my takeaway for other cities that are interested in doing that is, you know, continue to think holistically about the problem and yeah, make make sure that it kind of fits in a part of the bigger picture of of improving well being for everybody. Fantastic. So my final final question for for you both, and it'll be the same question to to each of you, and that is you just real quick your one or two pieces of advice that you would have for our listeners who may be inspired about our conversation today. What should they do in their own communities, or or, or based on your experience, you know how how can they get engaged? 
Well, my advice would be, because I know that a lot of your listeners are urbanists like us, <laughs> would be that governments make decisions for a reason. All decisions that are made every single day in all government departments at all levels are driven by something. Uh, and the what you can do to affect any change is to really understand that. Who's making decisions? What's informing those decisions? Why are they making the decision they are? And what is the impact of those decisions? Uh, and unearth that and show what that looks like. And you can't develop hard-hitting transformational policy or new ideas or any new outcome unless you really understand that because that's where all of the hard stuff to unpick sits and that's where it lives. And so if you can create a policy outcome or a tool or a relationship or a campaign that attacks <laughs> influences that decision-making point that you're most interested in, that's when you're going to have transformational change. Uh, and I would say that all of these issues we talked about today are really grounded in some decision-making that's going on at uh, various scales. And, um, and the work that Joe did provides fantastic, a fantastic resource to inform those decisions and make them better uh, over time. So that would be my advice. Joe. Yeah, I don't think I have too much to add. I, maybe just as like a, a bit of a, like maybe a counterweight to <laughs> Catherine's uh, practical advice is to be creative too. And, you know, I wasn't sure how to, how I was going to approach this at first when I kind of got this like really massive, messy qualitative question and then was asked to build a map out of it. Like my instinct was to think that those two things are at odds, that you can't quantify nature or feelings of being in nature and having that relationship. But um, at the same time, I think that there is so much use to these tools and it's so much better than the kind of status quo of just like dismissing that idea and saying it's not possible. Just try to be creative and and ask. I mean, my my instinct is to always, you know, start with the data again, asking people and and trying to figure out what you can come up with that works both from you know people's perspective and then also you know can can work within government as well. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And if I were to add uh, one of my own, I'd say, get out the door, <laughs> go go out, get out into nature, seek it out. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, many people are starting to appreciate it much more so than they had. Get out there, enjoy your environment, appreciate what you have out there, and uh, and speak up. You know, let let folks know, let the powers that be, let your community know, let your 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 family, friends, and neighbors know how important it is to have access to uh, high quality nature and wilderness environments. So very good. Well, Joe, Catherine, thank you so very much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. This was a great chat. Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 56 of the Active Towns podcast. I certainly hope you enjoyed this conversation with Joe and Catherine as much as I did. Please be sure to check out the show notes and this episode's landing page on our website for some great visuals and helpful links to the tools and plans we discussed. A couple of quick reminders before we part ways. Please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any questions or feedback, as well as any suggested topics or potential guests. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, again that's plural, dot O-R-G. It's always wonderful to hear from y'all. 
And as a final reminder, I'd be remiss if I didn't make one last appeal for your financial support. If you're in a position to do so, I'd be incredibly grateful if you'd make a contribution to Active Towns so I can keep producing this content. Just head over to activetowns.org and click on that blue donate link in the top right corner of the page. Thank you. Well, that's all for now. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.